Uh, so tonight we want to talk about three things. Uh, the first thing we want to do is uh, we want to look at some specific scripture passages, not a whole lot of them, but a, but a few, and we're going to look at them in more detail. Um, and then the second thing we want to do is um, think about people that have fallen away and how should, we, how should we think about those people, how should we treat those people. And then thirdly, we want to talk just briefly about how can we have assurance of salvation. We talked about that a little bit last week, but we want to, want to do that a little bit more tonight. Okay, so those three things. Um, be, if you have questions, be thinking of those, and we'll have some time at the end tonight to ask questions, or uh, as you know, we'll spend all of next week talking about questions. All right, so, uh, so the last couple of weeks, as you remember, we've been talking about the topic of eternal security, perseverance of the saints. Um, once someone is, is converted, once someone is, is saved, is born again, becomes a child of God, uh, can that person then lose their salvation and go back to not being converted, not being a child of God? And so the first week, we looked at some arguments against that, some people who say that, that yes, you can lose your salvation, okay? And there's, there's five reasons or five arguments that, that we talked about there. Uh, the first one is, is free will, if you remember. They said that if we have the freedom to believe in God and trust God, we have the freedom to, uh, to choose to believe in him, then that means we also have the freedom to choose to stop believing in him, right? We don't lose our freedom once we become believers. Uh, in the Bible, God actually warns people against falling away, tells people to be careful lest they fall away, things like that. Um, number three, there's some other Bible passages where uh, God encourages people to continue in the faith. So not only does he say, be careful that you don't fall away, he says, be diligent that you continue believing, that you continue in the faith. Um, and then fourth, uh, there seem to be some passages in, in the Bible where, uh, where we're, we're told of people who did in fact fall away. And, and we looked at some passages uh, like that. And then fifthly, uh, just our own experiences. And so people say, well, I know that you can lose your salvation because I know people in my life that have lost their salvation, right? I know family or friends or church members, former church members who... Uh, who at one point in their life were following and were, were faithfully following after the Lord, and, uh, and now they're not doing that, right? And so my, our, just our own personal experience. Last week, uh, we looked at three reasons uh, or three arguments uh, in favor of the idea that, 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 our, that we're eternally secure in Christ, that we cannot lose our salvation. Uh-huh. Number five was personal experience, that we know people who have fallen away. Then last week, we had arguments for eternal security, right? The idea that, that we're eternally secure in Christ, that we cannot lose our salvation. And there were three of those. And the first one was, um, was kind of a clarification. People who say that you cannot lose your salvation, uh, those people are not saying that nobody ever falls away, right? We know of people who have, who have fallen away. But the question is, why did they fall away, and what did they fall away from? And the Bible seems to say that people who, at one point in their life, seemed like they were following Christ, and then stopped following Christ, that that means they were never actually following him to begin with. And we looked at some passages that talk about that. So if someone, if someone does fall away from the faith, that means they weren't a genuine convert to begin with. They weren't genuinely saved to start with. Okay. And then secondly, last week, 
Uh, we said one of the reasons that we believe that, that we're eternally secure in Christ, that you cannot lose your salvation, is because of the author of salvation. Right? That, that the, the argument from, from free will kind of makes sense. If, if we're believing in Christ, then we have the freedom to stop believing in Christ. However, the Bible presents salvation as something that, that God initiates and that God does in us, not something we do in ourselves, right? We make choices and, and, and that kind of thing, absolutely. But salvation is a work, a work that God does in us. And so we thought, looked at passages like Philippians 1.6 that, that we're familiar with, that if, if God begin, begins a, a good work in you, then he will bring it to completion, right? If God's the one that starts saving you, then God's going to keep saving you. He's not going to stop uh, what he started. And then thirdly, we, we looked at the nature of salvation, what salvation is. Uh, salvation itself is a, is a total transformation, right? Uh, we use the analogy that, that I keep messing up about fire and uh, about mixture and, and chemical reactions, right? Um, someone explained to me last week that the, re, the, the way that fire works, I keep saying I don't know how fire works, the way that fire works is you have oxygen and you have fuel and you have heat. And those three things come together and create fire. So that's how it works. Although I still don't know how those three things come together and create a flame. But anyway, that's how salvation is, right? You take a mixture and you can mix things together, and, but then you can separate those things, right? But with the chemical reaction, you can't, once it's done, you can't undo it. If you have a fire, you can't go back to changing those ashes back to wood and heat and oxygen. Right? It's, a, it's a total change that cannot be reversed, and that's how the Bible presents salvation, that we're new creations in Christ. The old has passed away. The new is here. Right? We're born again. Um, we, have, we have new natures. And so, so those are, are three arguments for, uh, for the idea of eternal security that uh, it's not that no one ever falls away, but why does someone fall away? It's because they were never genuinely t- saved to begin with. And if they are genuinely saved, then, genuinely saved, then they won't fall away. Uh, and then uh, based on the author of salvation, based on the nature of salvation. So tonight we want to look at three, uh, three scripture passages. We could look at others. Uh, sorry, four scripture pa- No, three scripture passages. We could look at some others, but, but for the sake of time, I put these, these three down. And these are, are uh, two that we've already talked about and then one that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, and we want to look at some of these because... If, if we're saying that you cannot lose your salvation, well, what do we do with these scripture passages that seem to say that you can? What do we do with scripture passages that, that seem to talk about people who did lose their salvation? What do we do with scripture passages that seem to encourage people to keep believing so that you don't fall away? Or what, what do we do with scripture passages that seem to, uh, to tell people to be careful so, so that you don't fall away, right? How do we understand some of those passages? And so we're going to look at three of those tonight. And these are not on your scripture sheet because uh, I want us to look at these in a little bit more, more in depth. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Acts chapter 5. This is the passage we looked at the first week. And you'll remember it, I think. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira during the, uh, in the early church there in Acts chapter 5. Okay, so I'm going to read, start reading in verse 1. Read the first 11 verses that tell this this story about what happened with him. So it says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and they kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. They kept some, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. 
right? So they sold some property, they kept some of the money for themselves, and they brought the rest and donated it to the, to the church, to the, to the apostles. But they, they told them that they were donating all of it, but they hid some back and kept some back for themselves. So Peter said in verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Right? So he's saying you own the property. It was all yours. You could do whatever you wanted to with it. And even after you sold it, the, the money was yours. You could do whatever you wanted to with the money. But you chose to say that you were doing one thing and do something else. You chose to say that you were donating all of it to the church, but keep some for yourself. And he says the issue here is that you've lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so uh, verse 5. As Adonis heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, and he said, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out, and they buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Okay. So people look at that and they say, well, see, here's an example of uh, Ananias and Sapphira, a couple, a married couple, husband and wife, who were members of the early church. And so here's God killed them as a punishment for their sin. And so here's an example of somebody that's, that's fallen away. Here's an example of two people that have fallen away, right? And so the response to that, I think, is uh, a few responses. First of all, the passage never tells us whether Ananias and Sapphira are believers or not, right? Now, I think they probably are, just the way they're presented as part of the early church. I think they probably are believers, but we don't know that for sure. The Bible never says that for sure, right? The other thing is, the Bible never says that they lost their salvation. The Bible never says that they fell away. All it says is that God punished them for their sins. And, and the Bible is pretty clear. We, we may talk about this more in the coming months, but the Bible seems to be pretty clear that, that believers who are still trusting in, in, in the Lord can sin. And when believers do sin, Oftentimes, they suffer consequences for those sins, right? Oftentimes, they suffer consequences for those sins. And sometimes, the consequences for those sins can be, can be pretty great, can be pretty, uh, pretty severe. And so, so, just on my reading of this passage, it seems to me that, that Ananias and Sapphira probably were believers, although we're not told that for sure, but they probably were believers. They sinned against God, they sinned against the Holy Spirit, and they suffered consequences for that sin. They, they face the judgment of, of God for their sin. But that doesn't mean that they lost their salvation. That doesn't mean that they fell away from, from grace. It doesn't mean that they weren't forgiven for that sin, even. Often believers who are forgiven for their sins still suffer consequences 
for their sins. Right? And so this passage is not, not clear at all that this is a passage of someone who was genuinely a believer who then, who then fell away. Okay? Another passage uh, is Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to look at two passages in Hebrews, two more. But Hebrews chapter uh, we looked at this passage the first night as well. Hebrews chapter 3, uh, we're going to look at, two, at three verses, verses 12 through 14. Uh, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that, that leads you to fall away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Okay? So, so a few things are going on in this passage. This is one of the passages that is a warning passage, but also an encouragement passage. Right? It, it does both. So there toward the end, it says... Uh, verse 14, it says, we have become partakers if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance until the end. So it's encouraging them to continue in the faith, to hold on to the faith, right? But there's also a warning there where he talks about the deceitfulness of sin. And it's a warning to individuals and it's a warning to the whole church. All of you should be careful and should watch out unless there be any of you, any individual of you within the church who falls away and loses their salvation, Right? At least on the surface, that's what it seems to say. But I think if we look a little bit clearer, that's not what it's saying. In verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. Okay? It's important, the order that he says that. Because what is it that's causing them, or what is it that they're warning against that could cause them to fall away from the living God. An evil, unbelieving heart, right? It's not that they, it's not that they fall away. It's not that they fall into the deceitfulness of sin, which then causes them to change from having a believing heart to having an unbelieving heart and stop believing, right? It's the other way around. They have an evil, unbelieving heart to begin with, and the evil, unbelieving heart is what leads them to fall away. The cause is the evil unbelieving heart. The result is that they fall away. Okay? And so, so this is a picture, I think, of someone who's not a believer. He's saying, be careful lest there be people among you that are not really believers, who are not true believers. And they're, they're caught up in the deceitfulness of sin and, and they fall away. But the reason they fall away is because they have an unbelieving heart. They're not trusting in Christ. They're not, they're not believing. They're not they're not truly saved. Okay? A harder passage, I think, along these same lines is Hebrews chapter 6. And this may be the hardest passage in, in the Bible as far as uh, the idea of eternal security goes. If we believe, if, if, if you believe what I'm saying is true, that if you're trusting in Jesus, if you're genuinely saved and God's genuinely converted you and changed, changed you, so that you're no longer, so that you're now a new creation and the old has passed away, then what do we do with Hebrews chapter 6? Well, let's, let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 6, let's start in verse 1. 
He says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about, the, about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance toward dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Verse 3 says, and this we will do if God permits. For it, this is where it gets hard, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. This is a really hard passage if, if you believe that you can't lose your salvation. Because look how he describes these people in verse 4. He says people that have been enlightened... They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God and the power of the age, powers of the age to come. And then after those things have fallen away. That sounds like a believer, right? Somebody that has, uh, somebody that's been enlightened, sounds like a believer. Somebody that's tasted the heavenly gift, sounds like a believer. Definitely someone who has become a partaker of the Holy Spirit sounds like a believer. And then someone who's tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come sounds like a believer. And then that person has, has fallen away. So, so what do we think about that? How do we, how do we understand that? Okay, no. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so let's think about that. Uh, historically, there have been a few ways of trying to understand this. And, and the first way, I don't find that convincing, but the first way is to say this is hypothetical. This is not something that's, that's really actually possible, but this is a hypothetical situation. Hypothetically, if someone, were, if someone were to believe in God, if someone were to trust in Christ, if someone were to receive the Holy Spirit and then fall away, there would be no sacrifice left for them. There would be no turning back for them, right? Hypothetically, if someone who's really saved were to fall away from Christ, there would be no way to get back saved again, hypothetically. That, that doesn't really convince me. I, I'm, I'm not really convinced of that, but, the, but some people have, have thought that and understand the passage that way, that this is, this is hypothetical. Another way of understanding it, or, or a, a big question that we need to ask is, what does it mean well, another way of understanding it is that this is, this is the means of perseverance. This is how the Holy Spirit works to keep us faithful, is by giving us warning passages like this. And so we should take these passages seriously, and we should, we should follow them, but no one's ever actually going to fall away, right? It's, it's another kind of hypothetical. If we did fall away, then we'd be in a bad position, so let's be careful that we don't fall away. And, and God giving that warning passage to us is the means that he uses, how he 
uh, keeps us faithful, how the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to keep us faithful by giving us that warning so that we follow it, okay? I'm not really convinced of that either. Now, a big question we gotta ask is, what do these four things mean? And that's kind of what Canaan was getting at, I think. What does it mean to say that someone has been enlightened? What does it mean to say that someone has become a partaker of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to say that someone has tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come uh, and has then fallen away? Those, those, uh, what does it mean to say that someone has tasted the heavenly gift? Right? Those, those four things. It seems on the surface like that means salvation. Who's been enlightened? Well, the person that's been saved. Who, who's become a partaker of the Holy Spirit? Well, the person who's been saved. Okay? However, if we keep reading, I, I think we see that that's not the case. So we, we ended in verse 8. Look at verse 9. He's, he's talked about this in verses 1 through 8. We get to verse 9, and he says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that belong to salvation. Okay? So he's talking about tasting the Holy Spirit. He's talking about uh, being enlightened. He's talking about becoming uh, a partaker of the Holy Spirit, tasting the good gift, tasting the word, becoming a partaker of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about those four things. And so whatever those four things mean, we'll talk about that in a second, but whatever those four things mean, those four things are not things that pertain to salvation. Because he says, in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that do pertain to salvation or things that do belong to salvation, right? So he, he mentions those four things that they have. And he says, but in your case, we feel sure of better things, better than those four. And we feel sure of things that actually belong to salvation, which means that those four things don't belong to salvation. Okay? So what in the world could it mean that someone could be enlightened? What does it mean that someone could be a partaker of the Holy Spirit even? Have tasted his word, have tasted the good gifts and yet not really be a believer, not really be saved. And I think he's describing here someone who's in a very dangerous position. I think he's describing someone who is connected to the people of God, someone who, who, who knows the things of God, but is not believing them. And so think of someone who's not a believer, but is a regular attender of a church. Maybe even someone who's a member of a church, who everyone thinks is a believer, and, and yet that person's not really a believer, and that person may, may know deep down that they're not a believer, they may, be, they may just be outright faking for whatever, whatever benefit they get from it, from being part of the community, or, or they, may be, uh, they may not be so consciously aware of it, but they're, but they're not a believer. And so they, they've been enlightened in a sense because they've come to know the truth. They don't believe the truth, but they've come to know the truth. They've heard the gospel. They've heard the, the preaching of, of the word. They may even try to live out some of the teaching from the preaching of the word. It's possible, you know, we were here this morning, we heard a sermon from Nehemiah 3 about, um, about God's work is, is accomplished by the working of his people, right? It's possible for someone who is not a believer to have been here, to have heard that sermon, to have liked it, to have been convicted by it, and said, you know what? This week I'm going to start serving in the food pantry. Or this week, I'm going to come and help serve food for the football team or, or whatever it might be, right? It's possible for someone to have been enlightened, to have heard that and to have, have liked it 
and, and yet still not be a believer in Christ. But they're enlightened in the sense that they know the word and they, and they believe the word. One of the, um, one of the uh, top Bible scholars, especially New Testament scholars in the world right now, is a man named Bart Ehrman, who teaches at uh, UNC, I think, right, Josh, or Duke? I think UNC, yeah. He teaches, he, teaches, uh, he teaches Greek and New Testament at the University of North Carolina. But he's not a believer. But he's an expert on the Greek New Testament. He can tell you things about the, the New Testament that, that you don't know, right? He can tell you things. He can tell you how books fit together. He can tell you how things are quoted from the Old Testament. He can, he can give you all these facts about the New Testament. He can, he can explain things to you in ways that, that, that maybe you've never understood before, maybe ways you've never thought about before. And he knows it so well, but that he's going to believe it. In a sense, he's been enlightened, right? In the sense that, that he knows it, that he's come to know the facts of what the Bible says, but he, but he doesn't believe it. And so he's not a believer. He also says here, not only have they become enlightened, he says that they have, uh, what does he say, tasted, uh, tasted of the heavenly gift. They've tasted of a heavenly gift. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the word of God uh, and, the, and the powers of the age to come. These, these, are, these are things that, that, are, that are possible just from being connected to the church. And th- this is what Canaan was saying. You can become a partaker of the Holy Spirit in a sense by being around people that have the Holy Spirit. And you become a benefit of the Holy Spirit working in, in other people around you, even if you don't have the Holy Spirit yourself. And so you can partake in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You can partake in, uh, think about the fruit of the Spirit that, that Paul talks about in Galatians, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Is that all of them? Faithfulness, right? If you're someone that's not a believer, but you're part of a church and you're around a bunch of people that are believers, those believers have those gifts of the Spirit. And so you can experience and you can become a partaker of faithfulness. You can become a partaker of love as people that have the Holy Spirit around you are loving you. You can become a partaker of gentleness as people around you are being gentle with you and as you're kind of following their example and, 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 and they're influencing you and you're becoming kind of gentle like them. But you don't actually have the Holy Spirit in you, right? That's what Canaan was talking about King Saul in the Old Testament, how the Holy Spirit... Uh, how he experienced the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit led him in some ways, and yet the Holy Spirit wasn't, wasn't in him, and he wasn't, he wasn't trusting in the gospel, and eventually the Holy Spirit left him, right? Um, and and so, I, so I think the author here is saying you can experience some things, and you can be in the midst of things that, where you get the benefit of the gospel, where you get the benefit of being a believer, and, and yet you're not actually a believer yourself. Right? And, and, and obviously that's true. Think about a family where a mom and dad are both believers and they've got some kids. And the kids are not believers, right? Either we could say the kids are, are, are adults and are grown and are old and are not believers, or we could say the kids are still uh, really young and have not believed yet or whatever. But you've got a mom and dad and you've got some that are believers and you've got some kids that are not believers. The kids are going to benefit from the mom and dad being believers. The mom and dad are going to treat them differently. The mom and dad are going to be better parents 
or, or different parents, better parents, because they're, they're believing and trusting in, in Jesus. They're going to experience love from their mom and dad differently than they would if their mom and dad were not believers. Uh, they're going to experience the benefits of the Holy Spirit working in their mom and dad, right? And yet they're not believers themselves. They don't have the Holy Spirit in themselves. And here the, the author says, let's talk about some people that, that, that are in this situation where, they've, where they're, they're connected to people that are believers perhaps. They, they've become partakers and they've enlightened all these things. And he says, but in your case, I feel sure of better things, things that actually belong to salvation. And so whatever he's talking about when he talks about partakers and eating and enlightenment, those are things that don't belong to salvation, don't necessarily belong to salvation. They've experienced the goodness of God. They've experienced the benefits of, of salvation kind of secondhand through other people, but they themselves are not believers. They themselves are not believers. And so they've, they've fallen away now, right? But they've fallen away because they never were really believers to start with. The same as what John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would not have left us, but they left us to make clear that they were not of us, right? And so yes, they've fallen away from, from these things. They've fallen away from the church. They've fallen away from, from this connection with believers. They, fall, they weren't in this kind of secondhand uh, influence of the Holy Spirit, but they haven't fallen away from faith because they weren't saved to begin with, right? They didn't have the better things that belong to salvation. They just had those four things that, 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 that the author mentioned there. Okay? We'll have some time, some time at the end, well, hopefully, for some <laughs> questions about that, because that, that's probably the hardest passage in the, in, in the Bible for people that, are, that, that believe you cannot lose your salvation to deal with. Very quickly, I wanna, I wanna talk about two other things uh, tonight. The first one is, how should we treat people who have fallen away and then the second one is, how should we, uh, or the second one is, can we have uh, assurance? Okay, so I do have these scriptures on your, on your scripture sheet here. You can, you, can, uh, you can look at that if you want to. Uh, so three things, three ways that we should treat people that have fallen away. And remember, someone who has fallen away is someone who was connected to the church at some point, connected to believers at some point, and no longer is. But I believe the Bible teaches they were never genuinely converted. They were never genuinely believers to start with. So how should we think about these people? How should we treat these people? Well, number one, we should treat them with love. We should treat these people with, with love. Uh, we should work to bring them back. We should work to bring them back. And, and these people can be in a, in a unique position because because. They've heard the gospel, right? Like Hebrews says, they've been enlightened. They've heard the gospel. They know the gospel. And so when you're trying to bring them back, you're reminding them of what they've already heard and what they've already known. And, but you're trying to, trying to help them to see the, the truthfulness of that and help them to believe that and grasp onto that, right? But we work to bring them back. We, we treat them with love. I would hate to imagine, and I'm sure you would too, I would hate to imagine that there come a day where, uh, where I... You know, I'm, I'm at church every Sunday. I'm a pastor here, so that's expected and, and, and required, but I'm, I'm at church every Sunday. Let's say that I'm not a pastor and I'm still here every Sunday. And let's say that over, over, over the years, over time, it comes to where I start being here three Sundays a month. And then over some more time, I start being here twice a month. And then over some time, I start being here once a month. And then maybe once every six weeks, and then maybe once every two months, and then maybe once every six months. And eventually, I'm not really around here much at all. 
I would hate to think that I could end up in a position like that and no one here ever reach out to me. No one here ever try to bring me back. That would be heartbreaking, right? Some of y'all know the story. I think of, of Miss Alma, who, who passed away recently, but an older lady in our church, a widow in our church for the last several years. And there was a time in her life where she was not part of the church. She had fallen away in this sense. I think she was a genuine believer because she came back to the Lord in, in, in repentance. But, but something happened. I don't even know what happened, but something happened where she stopped coming to church for about 20 years, I think she said. 20 years. And at the end of 20 years, she came back for a special service, someone that, that was dear to her, a Sunday school teacher that had been really close to her, really dear to her, was, was retiring, and they were having a reception for her. And Miss Alma came back to honor her to go to that reception. And from there, she reconnected with some people, and she started regularly attending again from that point until, uh, until she died, or until she got to where she moved into a nursing home, right? And, and Miss Alma was awesome. We loved her. She was such a big part of our church. But she said she, for 20 years, she didn't attend. And she said for 20 years, nobody called her, nobody sent her a card, nobody came to visit her. She just was gone and that was it. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. For someone that we're thinking about, someone in this kind of category, we should, we should treat them with love. We should go after them. We should, we should try to bring them back. We should try to bring them back. We've already read Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. It's there on your sheet. But, but there, remember, the author says that all of us should be careful lest one of us fall away. We have a responsibility towards you as well, one another. We, we, uh, we have this in our church covenant. It's, it's there on that scripture sheet as well. It's not scripture, but it's on there just for reference. And article two of our church covenant says, we will seek by the Holy Spirit to maintain lives of holiness through drawing near to God, resisting the devil, putting to death our sins, and living unto righteousness. And then it says, we will personally watch over the souls of our fellow church members and urge them on to holiness and purity. We have a responsibility for each other. And we should treat one another with, with love. Second thing is we should treat them with concern. We should treat them with concern. We should treat them with love and we should reach out to them and we should go visit them and we should, we should uh, spend time with them. We should go out to eat with them or, or, or whatever the case might be. We should treat them with love, but we should also treat them with concern. Meaning that when we are with them, when we do reach out to them, we treat them as an unbeliever. We treat them as an unbeliever. And that doesn't mean we ostracize them. That doesn't mean we shun them. Not at all. It, but, it, but it means that we relate to them as an unbeliever. Now, they might be a genuine believer who's just in sin. But they're acting like someone who's not a believer. And so we, we treat them like an unbeliever. We have no assurance that they are believers. So what does that mean that we treat them as an unbeliever? It means that we're looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them. We're looking for opportunities to talk to them about, about Jesus. We look for opportunities to talk to them about, about the cross, right? We're not treating them badly, right? We're not, treating them, uh, we're not treating them differently as far as like our love for them goes and our relationship with them goes, nothing like that at all. But it means that when we're with them, we're looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them the way that we would be with a family member who's not a believer or, or someone else who's not part of our church that's not a believer. We have a concern for them, and we're looking for ways to, uh, to act on that concern. But then secondly, it, it also means we relate to them as unbelievers. It also means that we pray for them as unbelievers. 
We pray for them as unbelievers. This is still under number two. Treat them with, we, we should, the way we treat them with concern is by relating to them as unbelievers and praying for them as unbelievers. We, we should pray that God would convict them of their sins. We should pray that God would, would give you opportunities to talk to them about the gospel. Right? Number three, uh, we should treat them with seriousness. Treat them with seriousness. There may come a time, there may come a time where we have to remove them from membership of our church. That's a serious thing. We should take that very seriously. That's not something that we should do lightly, not something we should do quickly, not something that we should do joyously, God forbid, not something uh, that we should do flippantly. We should treat them with seriousness. Something that we, if that time were to come where we had to remove someone from, from membership, we would, we would be doing that. We hopefully would be reminding ourselves and, and, and knowing that we're doing that for their good and for the good of the church. So in, in 1 Corinthians 5, there's two passages there on your scripture sheet. In 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 12, uh, you know, one, one thought might be that's, that's pretty harsh, removing someone from membership. That's being kind of judgy, right? Christians aren't supposed to be judgy. That's being kind of judgy. Judge not lest you be judged, right? I don't know if y'all have ever had someone say that to you before. Um, and, and there's truth to that. Christians should not be judgy. Hopefully we wouldn't be. But there is a case where we hold one another accountable. So here in 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul's talking about a very specific situation of sin that's happening in the Corinthian church. And people are not repenting of it. People have gone to this, this person and said, hey, this is wrong. You should repent of this. And this person's refusing to repent of it. And so verse 12 here, he says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. That's not what that's supposed to say. 1 Corinthians 5. Twelve says, says this is toward the end of that passage talking about the sin that's happening in the church. And at the end, in verse 12, he says, for what, do, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? He says, as Christians, we shouldn't be judging those people that are not believers. We shouldn't be judging people outside the church. God judges people outside the church. Right? That's not our job at all. We're to love them. We're to be uh, we're to share the gospel with them, we're to be kind to them, we're to be merciful to them, and, and we leave the judgment to God. He says, what have I to do with judging those outside the church? Do you not judge those who are within the church? He says, we do have a responsibility to hold one another within the church accountable. Someone who's claiming the name of Christ, we have a responsibility to hold them to the standard of, of Christ. Right? And, and, and he says, if someone is not living to that standard, then, then, then we address that. Back up in verse 5, he says, uh, he says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the, the, for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He describes removing this person as, from the church as delivering him over to Satan. That's a really harsh phrase, but look at what he means when he says that. He says delivering over, him over to Satan for two reasons, that his flesh might be destroyed that his sinfulness might be destroyed, and that his soul might be saved, right? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There may come a time where we remove some from the church. The purpose is that they would come to the end of their sin. They would see how serious their sin is, 
and they would repent of that sin and turn back to the Lord. All right, so how do we treat someone who seems to have fallen away? We treat them with love, we treat them with concern, and we treat them with seriousness. And then finally, just really quickly, because we talked about this some last week, can we have assurance? Should we always be afraid that we're going to fall away, right? Uh, I told you all last week, when I was in high school, uh, maybe middle school, we would be at the youth conferences, youth retreats. Um, every, almost every time uh, we would be at a camp or retreat and there would be someone preaching, usually the third, the, the next to last night of camp, whatever night that was, they would give a, a, a gospel presentation. It would be a very evangelistic sermon, gospel presentation, and they would have everyone that wanted to to raise their hand or walk up forward or, or whatever it might be, and they would lead in a prayer of salvation. I don't know how many times I've prayed that prayer of salvation sitting in my seat silently just hoping, well, if it didn't work last time, hopefully it'll work this time, right? But, but in, in 1 John 5, 13, John says he wants us to know. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so how do we know that we have eternal life? How can we have assurance that we have eternal life? It's based on two things, I think. It's based on the author of salvation, we already talked about, that God's the one who saves us. And it's based on the nature of salvation, what salvation does in us. It changes us completely. And so the way that we have assurance, the root of our assurance is, what's happening in my life right now? What's happening in my life right now? Am I believing in the gospel right now? Am I trusting in Jesus right now? Am I repenting of my sin right now? If I am then I can have assurance that I'm saved. I can have assurance that the Lord has saved me. Okay? If I'm not doing those things, if I'm not trusting in Jesus right now, if I'm not, uh, if I'm not repenting of my sins right now, then I don't have assurance. Maybe I'm really am saved and I'm just in sin and I need to repent of that sin and turn back to the Lord, right? That could be a possibility. Or maybe I'm not really saved at all and so my sin doesn't bother me at all and I'm not worried about it and so I'm not repenting of it. But either way, I don't have assurance of salvation at that point. Our assurance is based in what's happening right now. I think I told you all last week, I was at a revival service one time, and the preacher, y'all remember the preacher said to find you somewhere in your house or your yard that's not, not very noticeable and put a rock or stake or something there so that whenever you look at that and see that, you'll know that you're saved. It'll be a reminder that God saved you tonight. Sometimes people look back at their baptism and say, I know that I'm saved. My assurance of salvation comes from what happened you know, 20 years ago or five years ago or 30 years ago, whatever it might be, when I was baptized and we have certificates of baptism to remind us of those things. And, and those things are good. We should remember the Lord working in our life. We should remember uh, significant moments in our life where the Lord's been working. That, that's absolutely good. But our assurance of salvation shouldn't come in something that happened in the past. Our assurance of salvation should come from what's the Lord doing in my life right now? Am I trusting in Christ? Am I repenting of my sins right now? If so, then I can rejoice in the assurance of salvation. If not, then I need to work some things out with God, right? Am, do I need to repent of some sin? Am I, am I not really saved? All right. Uh, it's right at 7 o'clock, but I do want to take just a few minutes if you have questions. Remember, next week will be all questions and answers. If you have questions, feel free to come next week and ask them out loud in front of everyone. If you don't want to do that, if you're kind of shy or whatever, you don't want to do that, absolutely fine. Uh, please send an email to one of your pastors or to the church office, or you can write it down on a piece of paper and hand it to us, or just tell us uh, 
before next week, and we'll be sure to talk about those questions next week. But let's take just a few minutes. Uh, any, any questions tonight about what we talked about tonight? That was a lot of things, three different topics, and pretty quick, pretty quick but uh, any questions or comments about tonight? Yep, Heather? Yeah, and there, you know, there are a lot of churches, ours is one of them, where we have, on a Sunday morning, we'll have 200 people here, but if you look at our like, official church role, there's a lot more than that on the church role. And, and so where are those people and what are those people doing? Are, have those people moved on and they're part of another church somewhere else? If so, praise God. Are those people still living for Christ, but they're like Miss Alma, where, they're, uh, where they're, something's happened, they're upset about something, or they've got their feelings hurt, or, some, or, or I don't know what happened with her, but something happened, and so they haven't been here in a long time, and, and, they're, and they're sitting at their house wondering, do those people not love me? Why are they not calling me? Why are they not sending me a letter? Why are they not reaching out to me? Why am I sitting here by myself, and they haven't even noticed that I'm not there, and we need to reach out to them? Or are there some of those people on that list that I'm sure are, are not following the Lord? And that's a, that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Yeah. And, and sometimes churches are guilty of trying to, trying to convince someone of, of uh, sometimes churches are guilty of trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit and try to convince someone, try to assure someone of their salvation when, when we shouldn't be so quick to do that maybe. I was talking to someone recently about uh, just, to, just kind of getting to know them and asked them about their testimony. How did, how did the Lord save you? And this person said, well, first of all, let me tell you about the time that he didn't save me, but they kept telling me that he did. Right? And she told this story about how she was at a church service and, and she prayed a prayer and they were telling her that she got saved. And she's like, I wouldn't, later I realized I wouldn't believe him, but they kept trying to tell me, even when I was asking questions, thinking, why am I still, why am I, why am I not feeling bad about my sin if the Lord saved me? And they kept saying, no, you're saved, don't worry about it, you're saved. And she's like, I wasn't saved, I needed to be worried about it. Right? And sometimes churches are guilty of that kind of thing. Also, uh, when, when we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together, there's a time during the Lord's Supper, right before we eat the bread and, and, and drink, the, drink the juice, where we take some time to reflect on ourselves. And that's not just something that, that we've come up with. The Bible tells us to be careful how we take the Lord's Supper. No, repent. Be careful how we eat the Lord's Supper, to examine ourselves before we, before we do that. If there's sin that we need to repent of, repent of that. The Lord, whenever we observe the Lord's Supper together, that's a great time for us to take just a short time, a few minutes, to examine ourselves. But, but that's also a good thing to do, you know, regularly. Maybe at the beginning of every year. Maybe that's part of, like, your New Year's resolutions tradition is to think back over the last year and how has the Lord been growing me over the last year and, and how have I grown in my maturity of Christ and those kind of things. Maybe every year at your birthday, take some time at your birthday and think how over the last, over the last year, how's the Lord been working in my life and, and how, how do I see myself growing in Christ over the last year or, or not. Edgar? Yeah. yeah, last week we prayed for Ecuador. Ecuador's on our prayer sheet. We, uh, he's talking. Venezuela is too. Um, Niger is too. Uh, but we should be praying for Ecuador. He's talk, if you don't know what he's talking about, he's talking about uh, a, a presidential election that's coming up soon. Uh, one of the candidates was assassinated just a week or two ago. Um, Ecuador's been dealing with some, uh, some difficult things, some violence happening because of drug cartels and gangs and different things. And so 
ask us to pray for Ecuador. All right, any other questions about what we talked about tonight? Kanan? Last one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if y'all didn't hear what he was saying, he was talking about Hebrews 3 where it talks about, where it says to exhort one another today as long as it's called today. And he was just making the point that today doesn't last forever, right? Uh, obviously today's 24 hours, but, but that's saying as we exhort one another as long as you have the opportunity to because there's going to come a day where the Lord's going to come back and judgment's going to happen and there's not going to be any more opportunity at that point. And so we should be, we should take, we should make the best use of the time, I think, is, is what Paul says in Ephesians. Um, and as long as we have that opportunity, we should be praying for people, we should be sharing with people, we should be reaching out to people. Yep. All right, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll be finished. Father, we thank you so much tonight for a, for a good Sunday night. God, we thank you for a good discussion about your word. God, we thank you even for, uh, for some, some parts of your word that are even uh, in some ways harder to understand. God, we pray that your spirit will be working in us and helping us. God, we pray that uh, as your church to rest together, we will be helping one another to, uh, to think really well about your, about your word and to, to wrestle over what you've told us, uh, that we might believe it and that we might follow it and we might live it out. God, we pray for those that are uh, surely we're thinking of that are, that are near to us and dear to us, people that we love, people that we know, people that we're thinking of right now that uh, at one time were living for Christ or seem to be living for Christ, and, and yet today they're not. God, we pray that you would bring them back. We pray that you would draw them to yourself. God, we pray that you would open up opportunities for us to, to reconnect with them if we've kind of lost contact, to uh, that we might love them and, and share your gospel with them and that you might use us to, to bring them back to you. God, we also want to pray for, for Ecuador. Our brother asked us to. God, we pray that you would be leading uh, the people of Ecuador uh, to make the, uh, a good decision for their country in this election that's coming up in, in, a, in a few days. Uh, God, we pray that you would be um, protecting your church there from violence. God, protecting your church there, believers there from uh, retaliation against uh, from the government for believing, God, that, that they would not enact restrictions that would make it harder to believe, um, that they would not uh, start experiencing persecution, um, God, that you would keep the country open for missionaries and others that are serving there to, to go in and, uh, and encourage those believers and be encouraged by them. God, we thank you so much for Jesus and pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you all. We're dismissed.